This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ranchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning. Um, Welcome to our show. This is the show that provides a respite from the political name-calling that's been going on here at WTIC on a regular basis. Uh, which went to a new level yesterday. I understand there's an afternoon guy who uh, referred to our elected officials with a B word that wasn't very nice and uh, then decided to take on our morning hosts, uh, Joe D'Ambrosio and Ray Dunaway. So uh, let's put that aside and stop the name calling and solve some problems that are going on here in America. One of the problems we're hearing about a lot now are vaccinations. Okay, this is... uh, really been elevated to a new level. Uh, And we've heard about this week. um, There was a a cruise ship run by Scientology, and they had an outbreak of measles. Now, here's what I don't like. I don't like people lying to me. I I don't know if people, maybe, maybe some folks don't mind being lied to. I do. So here's the thing. People are not getting their children vaccinated based on religious grounds. No organized religion professes that you shouldn't be vaccinated. Even Scientology allows vaccinations, okay? So the problem here is people are going to schools, and the the article was um, just published here in Connecticut. Data is startling on unvaccinated kids in, in Connecticut. And when you look at the schools where this is going on, it is in private schools, a Greenwich Catholic school, by the way, I'm a Catholic, okay? There is nothing saying you should not be vaccinated. The Pope has come out in favor of vaccination. So we're seeing people out there. It has nothing to do with religion. Don't go to the school and say it's on religious grounds. Now, if it's your opinion, that's okay. But I can tell you now, you cannot endanger your fellow citizens, your neighbors, because of your opinion and your feelings. And that's that's the rule of law. So it's interesting that we're seeing this primarily this, these anti-vaxxers are, are really a, have a lot to do with it. They're, they're kind of the free thinking people. And, and free thinkers are great, especially in medicine, right? That's where our progress comes from. But sometimes free thinkers fall off the cliff and they could put us all in danger. One of the schools that I became concerned about is the Montessori school. And um, uh, they're finding that in Montessori schools, they're having a lot of children who are not vaccinated. I don't think people understand. The the Montessori schools were founded by Maria Montessori. And uh, I am a proud alum of the same medical school as Maria Montessori, the University of Rome. Maria Montessori was a physician. And... She started this education based on science, and, and it's proven so. To the point, one of my daughters attended a Montessori school, did extremely well there. We've supported Montessori education for certain students. 
But again, now my children have to decide where my grandchildren are going to school. They're going to be asking the question, how many children in this school are vaccinated? Because we're not sending our children to a private school, a Catholic school, a Montessori school, where they do not have the critical amount, the critical number of students vaccinated. We're not putting children at risk. So I can tell you that this is going to come back and bite those people in these private schools because of the so-called free thinkers who feel that they're out on the cutting edge. There is no science to support not being vaccinated. And on a personal note, if you've ever had someone in your family die of a disease for which they were not vaccinated, it would hit home. I had an uncle, my mother's brother, died of whooping cough. Before we had vaccines, before we had adequate treatments, people died of these things. Measles can produce an encephalitis, swelling of the brain. It can result in unborn children being born deaf. This is not something to play with. So now we turn it over to the politicians. And um, again, we're going to see what comes out of Hartford. The rule being that no more religious exemptions. No more lying. The lying has to stop. And we need to do something because this is a public health problem and has now affected all of us here in Connecticut. With that, moving right along, the, the Food and Drug Administration has come down on a few things. There are a lot of things out there making false claims about memory uh, in terms of where these supplements are going to help your memory. Finally, the FDA has gone out and gone after companies who produce these supplements that make false claims about memory. The biggest one is ginkgo biloba. Every study done has not proven in a way, right? In this, on this show, we talk about evidence-based medicine. There's no evidence basis to do it. Now, people could take it. It's not going to hurt them. But by the same token, for people to go out and try to con you and lie to you and say this is going to do this, okay, is not acceptable. And the FDA has finally um, taken a, a stand on that. The other thing that's interesting, and I just learned about this, young plasma transfusions as an antidote for age-related diseases. There are companies out there giving people infusion, transfusions. They're transfusing blood from young people into old people with the idea that you will avoid chronic diseases. And they're charging between eight dollars and $12,000. So does it work? We don't know. There are studies ongoing to think that there may be elements in younger people's blood that may have a beneficial effect. But those studies are far from being – actually, they've only been done in rodents. So for somebody to take that little bit of information and start saying, listen, if you give me $12,000, I'm going to make you young again. Okay, Again, they're selling snake oil. So I want our listeners to be aware that this stuff is out there. And, you know, when you become somewhat desperate uh, when you're facing Parkinson's disease and you're facing a memory disorder and you just want to do something. And, and with that, there are things that can be done, but there are always people there to take advantage of you. 
This day in medicine, May 4th, 1876, Dr. Adam Hammer of St. Louis correctly diagnosed a coronary occlusion, a blocked coronary artery during life. It was the first time it was done. And it was interesting because it wasn't somebody who was having typical angina. They had known what angina was, that crushing chest pain that you get. They knew what it was, but they didn't know that it resulted in a heart attack. In the case he described, it was someone who developed a heart block. Their heart just kept functioning slower and slower and slower till eventually it stopped beating. And he demonstrated this in an autopsy showing a blocked artery. And it was the first time it was demonstrated there was a blocked artery and infarction of the heart. So with that, we salute Dr. Adam Hammer. We're going to take a short break. And this month is Stroke Awareness Month. So I have the pleasure that we're going to chat here in the studio with Dr. Mark Alberts, who is the physician-in-chief at the Iron Neuroscience Center at Hartford Hospital. He is also a professor of neurology at the University of Connecticut. And we're going to be chatting about stroke, the things you need to know, the types of stroke, treatment, how to be aware of it, what to do so you don't have one. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. And if you'd like, you can email me live on the radio at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today we're talking about stroke. This is Stroke Awareness Month, and my guest here is Dr. Mark Alberts. Dr. Alberts is the physician-in-chief at the Iyer Neuroscience Institute at Hartford Hospital. He's also the chief of neurology at Hartford Hospital and professor of neurology at the University of Connecticut. Mark, welcome to the show. Good morning, Tony. Thanks for the invitation. Happy to be here. Um, let's talk a little bit. Let's get right into it and talk about stroke and, and the things people need to know. Because we all hear the word stroke, but... It's a fairly general term because there are different types of stroke. And um, can you kind of explain to our listeners the different types and, and what we're dealing with with stroke? Right. Well, that's a great question. So stroke in general terms happens when a blood vessel in or around the brain either gets plugged up or it ruptures. When the blood vessel gets plugged up, that's the most common type of stroke. And that accounts for about 80 to 85% of all strokes. And we call those strokes ischemic strokes. The other type of stroke is when a blood vessel in or around the brain ruptures, it bursts. And we call those types of stroke hemorrhagic stroke, which is a fancy medical term for bleeding. And this accounts for about 15 to 20% of all strokes. So ischemic strokes are the most common. And when a blood vessel gets plugged up, that part of the brain supplied by that blood vessel with blood and oxygen and, and glucose malfunctions. And that produces the symptoms of a stroke. And it could be weakness or numbness on one side of the body, trouble walking, talking, seeing, things like that. When the blood vessel ruptures and causes a hemorrhagic stroke, the symptoms could also be the same as an ischemic stroke. It typically comes on very suddenly, and the patients have a sudden onset of a severe headache, oftentimes the worst headache of their life. And they may collapse or pass out or have nausea or vomiting. So that's a a broad overview of the two major types of stroke. So historically, Mark, with those types of strokes, and and 
and I'm fairly senior in this game. And, you know, originally it was, well, we can't do anything for it. I mean, there was, and, and to some people still think that way is that when people have a stroke, well, there's nothing to be done. Um, can we talk a little bit about the importance of really identifying this early because there are things to do? Absolutely. And the saying in the neurology or stroke community is time is brain. And it's true because in the setting of a stroke, every minute that you're having a stroke, your brain is losing about 2 million nerve cells. Wow. 2 million nerve cells. Now, I don't know about you and the people you work with, but in terms of me and the people I work with, my friends and family, I don't know of too many people that can afford to lose 2 million nerve cells a minute. Right. Especially in your brain. So we want people to recognize the symptoms of a stroke right away and call 911 to get to a medical facility, hopefully a stroke center, as rapidly as possible so that me and my colleagues can intervene and can do something in terms of figuring out the cause of the stroke, the type of stroke, and what acute therapies they need. How did we get to this point? How did we go from shrugging our shoulders to now, I mean... CT scanners in the back of uh, trucks um, to identify strokes in the field, uh, you know, clot busting medications, uh, you know, clot retrieval. What happened along the way? Well, I think you've identified some of the key, key events. Number one, our ability to image the brain, to take a picture of the brain rapidly and non-invasively. It started with CTs in the 70s, and now we can do MRI scans, which gives us a very detailed picture of somebody's brain, really just in a matter of a couple of minutes. So that was one major advance in terms of imaging and diagnostics. And then, as you pointed out, the um, approval of TPA, which happened in June of 1996, believe it or not, over 20 years ago, gave us a therapy. And now we've expanded upon that with clot removal and our neurosurgical colleagues. Colleagues now have a way of stopping the bleeding in the brain. So all those things have moved forward in a rapid pace. You know, it's funny. I'm asking you about the evolution of it. And, and when I look at your CV, you have been part of the evolution right from the beginning, really. Um, and I have to take my hat off to you because, you know, your work at, at Duke and UT Southwestern has uh, really been instrumental in moving this along and now uh, we have this available at Hartford Hospital but but you know Mark I guess uh, the way to treat a stroke is probably to avoid the stroke and the risk factors are a big problem because people always say is this a growing problem are we seeing more strokes are we seeing more strokes and is it the risk factors we are seeing more strokes, and, and you were right when you said the best way to treat a stroke is to prevent the stroke. Because even with these new therapies that we have, strokes still occur. They leave patients sometimes dead or disabled. So it is true the best way to treat it is to prevent it. But we know the risk factors for stroke. High blood pressure, diabetes, smoking, um, poor lifestyle, uh, obesity, heart disease, all of those can produce the strokes. And frankly, many of these are diseases of aging. And we as a population are getting older. And that's one of the reasons we're seeing more strokes. We're going to take a quick question here. Uh, we have a question on stroke. We have Gene in Harwinton. Gene, welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you? Okay, pretty good. All right. I had a, I had a quick question. Sure. I'm a victim of a stroke. And my stroke was a a bleed, a rupture in my brain, and affected my left side, my left arm, and my left leg. And I spent nine months in a nursing home, 
and they work with me, and, and now I can, I'm able to maneuver around. I, I wear a brace on my leg, and I'm able to walk with help, and uh, I can move my arm. I can't function with it, but I can move it. And I wasn't sure, I mean, with all these new things they have, why is it that they can't get in and remove this blood clot that I have? Okay, I'm going to hang up on you, but we're going to answer that question because that's a, that's a great question, Gene. Thanks for the call. Thank you. So with that, that was the question. Can he go in? So somebody who's had a hemorrhage and is an existing stroke, is is that existing blood in there causing a problem, or has the problem been done pretty much already, Mark? Yeah, the, the damage has already been done. I mean, acutely, if we were in a few minutes or hours, Depending on where that bleed is in the brain, the neurosurgeons can try to go in and remove that blood clot. But it sounds like your caller had a stroke many years ago. So that blood there has largely resolved. And it typically resolves over the three to six months after it happens. So that damage has already been done, unfortunately. Yeah, Um, that is uh, a problem. Uh, And I think people get confused a little bit about when we're going to talk more about stroke retrieval and going in there and clot retrieval and going in and uh, grabbing a clot. Um, a quick question. When we look at the risk factors for stroke, what do you think the number one risk factor is when we look at the whole group of them? Right. So we divide these risk factors, Tony, into two groups, those that we can modify and those that we can't modify. Unfortunately, the most important risk factor that we cannot modify is aging getting older. That's a very powerful risk factor for stroke. Among the risk factor that we can modify, the most important is high blood pressure or hypertension. That's the most common but most modifiable risk factor. And we have data that if we could treat everybody's blood pressure to the level it should be at, we could prevent almost 50, 50 percent of all the strokes just by getting the blood pressure down to where it should be. Wow, that's uh, an impressive number and uh, obviously something we need to pursue further in terms of uh, really controlling these risk factors. Great. We have some callers, but we're going to take a a short break here. Um, Let me give you the phone numbers again. 860-522-9842-1800-966-9842. We're chatting with my my guest today, Dr. Mark Alberts. Dr. Alberts is the physician-in-chief at the Iyer Neuroscience Center at Hartford Hospital, and we're talking about stroke. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today we're chatting with Dr. Mark Alberts. Dr. Alberts is the physician-in-chief at the Iyer Neuroscience Center at Hartford Hospital. We're talking about stroke. This is Stroke Awareness Month. Uh, Mark, so... A lot of the things we talk about now uh, are with respect to stroke. We talked about risk factors and controlling hypertension and a little bit about treatment. So can we talk a little bit more specifically about what to do? So when someone's having a stroke um, and they, they're able to identify it, get to the hospital quickly, what can they expect? What's going to happen? What should happen? Right. Well, one of the key messages, Tony, is to lay the patient down, make sure they're safe, make sure they're breathing, call 911 so they can get to the hospital. So when they get to the hospital, they're going to be examined. Someone's going to take a history. Somebody's going to examine them, make sure it's really a stroke versus a heart attack versus low blood sugar or seizure. They're going to have blood work done. They're going to get a picture of their brain done with either a CT scan 
or an MRI scan. Then we're going to take a picture of their blood vessels in or around the brain using a procedure most commonly what we call the CTA, CT angiogram. Because we want to identify the type of stroke, where the stroke is occurring, what's going on with their blood vessels, and then that will get us on a pathway for what sorts of treatment they need to at first stabilize the patient, make the symptoms of the stroke go away, and then make sure the patient doesn't have another stroke. So we want to stabilize them, identify the cause, figure out what we can do to reverse that stroke in the very acute setting, and then once the patient is admitted, see what we need to do to prevent them from having another stroke. How important, I've read the the data past, and in the past it's always said that if you can get to a stroke center, you have a better chance of surviving. What What is a stroke center? Can you define so people know what a stroke center is? Right. Well, seven, several organizations, the most common, the largest is called the Joint Commission, have a process for identifying a hospital as a stroke center, typically a primary stroke center or a comprehensive stroke center. And this is a rigorous process by which the Joint Commission and their reviewers go into the hospital. They assess the personnel, the facilities, the protocols, the patients, the outcomes to make sure that this hospital is functioning at a high level. Now, around the country, there's about 1,500 primary stroke centers, a couple hundred comprehensive stroke centers. Here in the state of Connecticut, there are currently only two comprehensive stroke centers, which is Hartford Hospital and Yale New Haven. So those two places are able to offer the most advanced, most sophisticated stroke care 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of the year. So... Obviously, not everybody can get to Hartford Hospital or to Yale, and that's where you have the primary stroke centers. Comprehensive stroke centers. You're comprehensive, but you have primary stroke centers in the field, right? I mean, for example, Bacchus Hospital is a primary stroke center, correct? Correct. So that's what I meant by that. So in other words, it's kind of a spoken wheel model. Spoken hub, right. Spoken hub. So the concept is that a patient, if they can't go to Hartford or Yale, they would go to the nearest primary stroke center, be evaluated there, and then using telemedicine, telestroke, and a variety of means, we could figure out if those patients need to come to the comprehensive stroke center. So you hit the next topic. So last Sunday, I don't know if you you may know this, but uh, Elliot Joseph has a radio program on Sundays. Um, yep. And... Uh, Healthcare matters, and the topic last week was telemedicine, and our colleague Dr. New was a guest, and it it's so interesting to look and listen, and and I always learn about the progress being made in the field of telemedicine. So I know you mentioned it with respect to stroke. Can you talk a little bit more about what happens with a telemedicine evaluation? What so if somebody comes to the emergency room? at Bacchus Hospital, Wyndham Hospital, and it's determined they had a stroke, how do they plug them into telemedicine? Right. Well, what we've done in terms of Hartford HealthCare is that we have put advanced imaging in all of our primary stroke centers, and we call this imaging protocol the RAPID protocol. It doesn't have to do with the fact that it's done rapidly, but it is, but it allows us to see which patients with an ischemic stroke have salvageable brain and which don't. 
So the whole telestroke arena has to do with imaging the brain, communicating, and in some cases we can see the patient remotely, examine them remotely, and certainly have access to their imaging studies, the pictures of their brain and blood vessels, to see who needs to be transferred and who doesn't. And having done this for the past year, we have found that we could eliminate almost 50% of the transfers. And in Connecticut, with the weather and snow and blizzards, it's nice to use Telestroke to allow patients to stay near their home, near their local hospital. But those patients who need to be transferred, we can transfer them by helicopter or ambulance. Who's at the other end of telemedicine? So obviously Dr. New is one of them, and he was talking about it. Are they all stroke-trained neurologists? Correct. For stroke, it would be a stroke-trained neurologist. For trauma, it would be a, a trauma surgeon. So they are subspecialty-specific people who are board-certified in that area of medicine. Uh, it's a tremendous advancement uh, in treating stroke and identifying stroke early and, and the appropriate treatment. Uh, we're going to take a short break now. Um, uh, my guest here is uh, Dr. Mark Alberts, and we're going to get to some of the questions that have been coming in um, to touch on. We had a question about aneurysms that we want to talk a little bit about, and we want to talk about blood thinners. I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there about blood thinners, which ones to take. Is there an antidote to taking them? And a new device called the Watchman device. So we're going to chat a little bit about that. Again, you're listening to Healthy Rounds. The phone number here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds, and we're in the final segment uh, of our session with Dr. Mark Alberts, and uh, we're talking about stroke centers and, and treatment of stroke, and uh, Mark, I know w one of your passions and areas of expertise has been anticoagulation, thinning blood in order to avoid recurrent strokes. Where are we with that? I mean, uh, we all remember heparin and Coumadin. Um, where have, how has this evolved? Well, the field has really gone in a great direction, Tony, because now we have this new generation of blood thinners that we call NOAX or DOAX, novel oral anticoagulants. And um, the advantage of them is that they're much easier to use and give than warfarin. Typically, there's no dose adjustment. There's no need for multiple blood tests. You can eat food, salad, whatever you want with them. There's very few food and drug interactions. And in terms of dosing, it's almost like one size fits all. So they're so much easier than warfarin, and in most cases, they work as well as warfarin, if not better. And in many cases, they're as safe as warfarin, if not safer. So me and my colleagues think that that whole field of the novel oral anticoagulants has been a huge advance, especially for preventing strokes in patients with atrial fibrillation, in treating DVT or pulmonary embolism, things like that. So in using them, again, uh, you don't have to get regular blood work. Correct. One of the knocks against them has been you can't reverse them. So obviously with Coumadin, you can give vitamin K and uh, fresh frozen plasma. And, and if someone comes in with a bleed and they're on the medication. But that's changed. Correct. Now we have a way of reversing the NOAX. It's a new drug. It's a monoclonal antibody named Andexa or Andexanet. It's given intravenously. It can reverse the bleeding effects of one of these NOACs or DOACs, the reversal begins within two minutes of the infusion. 
and you give them a two-hour infusion, and the new data suggests that it works in in over 80% of cases. I guess, why would you put somebody on an anticoagulant? The thing we always hear about is atrial fibrillation. And, and I think we're either seeing, I think we're seeing more of it, but correct me if I'm wrong, it's because people are living, living longer and, and we're seeing more atrial fibrillation. Can you talk a little bit about the situation where you would put somebody on a blood thinning medication? Right. So as you correctly pointed out, Tony, AFib is largely a disease of the heart of aging. And with more people living into their 80s and 90s and even beyond, we're seeing more AFib. And AFib is a very significant, very common risk factor for stroke. It may cause 15 to 20% of all strokes, even higher in an older population. A medication like the novel oral anticoagulants, such as rivaroxaban or apixaban, do a great job reducing the risk of stroke in the setting of AFib. And if there is a bleeding complication, andexanet does a very good job in terms of stopping or limiting this bleeding. One of the things that's now being advertised on television even is the Watchman device, um, which is something you put in the heart to avoid stroke from atrial fibrillation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So in the setting of AFib where the heart is not beating properly, Oftentimes, a clot forms in a part of the heart called the left atrial appendage. It sort of, you know, looks like something like your pinky finger, and it sort of hangs off part of the heart. And the blood can sort of sit there in the setting of AFib and not go anywhere and form a blood clot. What the Watchman device is, is that it physically separates this or blocks the left atrial appendage from the rest of the heart. So even if there is a clot there, it would be much more difficult for that clot to break away and get into the main heart chamber and then go up to the brain to cause a stroke. So that's the Watchman device, and we typically would consider using it if the patient could not be anticoagulated for any of a number of reasons or if they failed anticoagulation. Um, Switching gears, one of the questions that came up and the the caller had to go was – Aneurysms, multiple aneurysms uh, in a patient. Can you talk a little bit about kind of getting ahead of stroke and hemorrhage where you've identified an aneurysm? Right. So an aneurysm is a little outpouching of part of the blood vessel. And you can imagine it like an area of weakness in a garden hose or a hose in your car. And as that, that outpouching gets larger, the wall of the blood vessel gets thinner and you run the risk of that blood vessel rupturing or popping, producing a subarachnoid hemorrhage. We can intervene now by putting coils, plugging that up so that it doesn't rupture, or by neurosurgically clipping it, essentially putting something that almost looks like a paper clip on that outpouching or aneurysm so that even if it did rupture, it would not lead to bleeding in or around the brain. What percentage now? I, I mean, I'm hearing more and more and seeing more and more patients who have had coiling and and you and I both remember when it first started, it was is a relative rarity. But um, it, it seems like a lot more people are having coiling as opposed to clipping aneurysms. you have an idea? Is, is it a majority of them now? Clearly, a majority of patients have coiling instead of clipping because it's safer. It's less invasive. It is as effective as clipping in many but not all cases. The problem, Tony, is that not every aneurysm can be coiled. Based on the way that aneurysm looks, some of them have to be clipped. That's just the best treatment. You know, and people don't understand. These are the situations where people just died in the past. I mean, you just woke up and somebody was dead. And now we're being so aggressive. One of the things 
you have at Hartford Hospital is now a training program for interventional neurology. And cool. and that's kind of interesting because it's not something neurologists did in the past, right? We talked about shrugging your shoulders um, <laughs> when someone had a stroke. But can you talk a little bit about the program at Hartford Hospital where you're training interventional neurologists? Right. Typically, the e- interventions like coiling an aneurysm and uh, stenting a carotid artery would have been done by interventional neuroradiologists or interventional radiologists. But now you find that different uh, physicians in these different fields, including neurosurgery and neurology, are being trained in these interventional techniques so that they have a variety of options to treat their patients. We do have a program at Hartford Hospital where we train a number of people specifically in neurology and interventional neuroradiology in these techniques. What With that, one of the things I like to wrap up with is what's the next big thing we're going to hear in the field of stroke uh, in terms of whether it be treatment, identification? What's the next thing our listeners should be paying attention to uh, as this exciting field evolves? Well, we're doing a better job with MRI to be able to image their blood vessels and detect abnormalities in the blood vessels like an inflamed plaque that's likely to rupture and produce an ischemic stroke. So the non-invasive imaging continues to grow and advance so that we can better select which patients it leads to uh, what Elliot talks about a lot, which is individualized or personalized medicine so that we don't have to paint everybody with one brush. Identify who with specific risk factors we need to intervene on in which way to really target the highest risk patients and know what interventions they need. It's the the next big field, this inter, um, personalized or individualized medicine. And how would you identify that in a screening procedure of some type? or we We identify that with a very complex computer algorithm. And what you find is that in certain patients, depending on their risk factors, certain other risk factors are more important to treat than others. And it it, it really is personalized medicine and machine learning using advanced computer algorithms. We're working with some very bright people from MIT to develop this. And it's in its infancy, but I think it's going to be the wave of the future. One of the things I want to touch on is this week we'll both be attending the American Academy of Neurology, our annual meetings of our academy. And this is a group where there'll be 20,000 neurologists um, accumulating in Philadelphia. And one of the things that always gets my attention is uh, the trainees, the training program uh, of which you have at Hartford Hospital. What are you seeing now in terms of the residents coming in, those young neurologists coming in? How has that changed from when you and I started? Well, I, I think the field of neurology is really separating into two distinct subfields. Number one are the neurologists who basically do outpatient neurology. They deal with things like headache, uh, movement disorders, epilepsy, MS, things like that. And then about 15% of the field goes into hospital-based neurology, where they are essentially neurohospitalists treating patients in the hospital with acute problems, like a stroke, like a seizure, like a spinal cord compression, things like that. So I've really found a what we call a, a dichotomization or a separation of the field of neurology into outpatient versus inpatient neurology. What's also interesting, I'm seeing the demographics have changed. Uh, more women, uh, more minorities, 
more people coming from foreign countries uh, to train. I know that uh, you've been able to obtain visas, fortunately, for for young attendings coming to the state of Connecticut. Uh, Do you see that change continuing to happen? I I do see that change continuing to happen. But to be honest with you, out of many of the different fields of medicine, neurology still does not attract proportionately the number of physicians that we need, which is why we need to reach out to new demographics, international medical graduates, and the like, because the need for neurologic expertise is high, but the supply of neurologists is really limited. Which really should be an attractive feature for a young person who wants to go into a field and into an exciting field, uh, being that, you know, there's plenty of room for growth and choice and, and lifestyle. Um, And that, and being on the cutting edge of new treatments for seizures, new surgical approaches to epilepsy and movement disorders. Neurologists and neuroscience is really on the cutting edge of a lot of these great advances. Mark, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us today and and really for everything you're doing at Hartford Hospital uh, in the field of neurology. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you for the kind invitation, Tony. Um, as uh, we were talking about the American Academy of Neurology meeting is this week, uh, and I'm hoping to tape some interviews there uh, with people from around the world um, who are doing exciting things in neurology. So I will be part of uh, their media group and getting some um, taped interviews on things that would be interesting to all uh, you listeners. Many thanks to our studio producer. Mike Oakle has been on the board. Uh, Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Uh, Mike Olko also might be a referee on Monday uh, among the various hosts, and we'll listen to that with excitement. Uh, Next week, as I said, I'm going to have some taped interviews uh, for everyone to go over. One of the other things that's really grown is the Healthy Rounds podcast. You can get the podcast by going to wherever you get your podcast. So iTunes, just download it for free, and all of our shows are there. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You could do this by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Just go to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.